Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The words of a president matter. Biden's a stupid person. You know that. You're not going to write it. You know that. You're listening to our special U.S. election series, Campaign Confidential. A huge new Pew Research Center study of 10,000 American adults finds us more divided than ever, with personal and political polarization at a 20-year high. The growing political polarization in America is hard to ignore. Inside the increasingly polarized American media culture, many say over the years has contributed to the polarization of America. But it's really these historical forces that have created our polarized situation. Polarization. It's a word that's come to describe American politics, and for good reason. Survey after survey has shown that Republicans and Democrats now view each other not simply as wrong, but as malevolent. Increasingly, we Americans occupy alternate universes. There are legions driving the country further and further apart. In America today, electoral politics infects everything, the way Brexit was inescapable in the United Kingdom up until the pandemic. The language is harsher. The tribes define friendship circles and divide families. There's no agreement on how, even whether, to control the coronavirus pandemic. It's even increasingly popular to filter out people you might politically disagree with on dating apps. I thought she was the meanest, uh, the, the most horrible, most disrespectful of anybody in the U.S. Senate. And then there's Donald Trump. We are going to defeat the radical socialist Democrats. Trump is the most polarizing president in modern American history, according to polling from the nonpartisan Pew Research Center. The gap between the Republican and Democrat levels of approval for President Trump is 81%. Since January 2017, an average 87% of Republicans have approved of Trump's handling of the job, compared with an average of just 6% of Democrats. But while Trump is the ultimate polarizer, he isn't the original. Polling across presidencies and across issues shows a deep trend of increasing polarization dating back to at least the turn of the century. In other words, America is growing apart. In this episode, we're asking one simple question. Why? I'm Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Global Translations newsletter, coming to you from Highlands, North Carolina, where advanced voting has started in the U.S. presidential election. And you're listening to Episode 4 
of Campaign Confidential. To help us answer this question, we turn to two experts in what drives America's political parties and the country's voters. The first is Kristen Soltis Anderson. I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson. I am a pollster and co-founder partner of Echelon Insights, which is a polling and analytics firm based in DC. I'm also a columnist for the Washington Examiner and a contributor to Fox News. And Politico's own Tim Alberta. Hi, I'm Tim Alberta, chief political correspondent for Politico. Tim lives in Michigan. He moderated a Democratic presidential primary debate this election season, but his real specialty is in covering the modern Republican Party. In fact, he wrote the book on it. I spent a lot of time in the last few years writing for Politico and in writing a book about the making of the modern Republican Party. And he recently published a searing piece in Politico magazine that we'll link to in the show notes called The Grand Old Meltdown, playing off the Republican Party nickname, The Grand Old Party. Let's start with the big picture. In a world of social movements and social media, how important are political parties today in steering American political discourse? So I think you could say that political parties themselves have never been less relevant because of the insurgent asymmetrical forces in our modern politics with outside groups and with outside money and with political and cultural movements that tend to uh, sort of dictate from the ground up, uh, you know, what is important and what should be prioritized and what people care about. And with the ability of, you know, social media to allow people to get around the traditional gatekeepers. uh, I mean, I think in many ways that makes a compelling case that the parties themselves are sort of these relics and, and empty vessels in, in, in some sense uh, that are sort of abused and discarded. On the other hand, we do still have in America this sense of binary politics. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's important to see the parties for what they are, which is representative of something much deeper than ideas or philosophies or, you know, principles for governing, but rather as representing these kind of tribal, uh, these, these warring factions in America. You're in Michigan. What does polarization feel like for you? What does it actually look like in the day-to-day lives of people in Michigan or, or other parts of the U.S.? You know, the thing is, it's actually not materially different I don't think being in a mid-sized city in Michigan where I am in Southeast Michigan versus being in, in DC or New York, you know, the people in uh, you know, a small town in the Midwest are still going to either get their news from Fox or from CNN, right? They're, they're still going to choose whether to buy an American car or a foreign made car. They're still going to, you know, uh, base their uh, consumer decisions from, you know, grocery shopping to movie rentals to restaurants that they frequent. They're still largely basing those things off of an underlying prejudice or or, or certainly a a deeply embedded sense of, of, of cultural preference and cultural affiliation that even though it doesn't feel political, it is. There was a time in which you could pretty cleanly separate the political from the societal. 
And my own opinion on that is, you know, that that time is, is long since passed and that really the post 9-11 era in America has been defined by the merging of all of these tribes, cultural, you know, geographic, economic, and certainly political, all into one where those lines are really blurred. And for people who are observing it all from the outside, it would probably be easy to assume that Donald Trump has added a lot of fuel to that fire or it somehow started with him. Have you got a sense of where you would trace the roots to? Boy, so I do think that you could probably take the long winding path all the way back to the 60s and the civil rights movement. Um, I think the medium path you could take back is to Reagan and, and the conservative movement as it really gained its foothold largely around some of those more ethical, cultural, moral issues. But, you know, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, Ryan, I would personally look back to kind of the end of the Bush presidency as when, you know, the point at which things really began to fall apart uh, for this country, just in terms of its inability to distinguish political divides from divides in every other facet of our lives. And you have the Tea Party, you have the election of the country's first African-American president, you have Sarah Palin, you have this massive economic disruption and, and, you know, socioeconomic displacement, millions of people losing their work overnight and feeling as though, you know, the government has sort of given up on them. And at the same time, they see their communities getting browner and blacker than they ever have. And they feel a sense of, you know, cultural displacement that goes along with that economic displacement. You've covered the Republican Party for over a decade now. How have you seen it change uh, in line with that sort of falling apart within America that you described? You know, I think so much of the energy that we once believed the party drew from ideas, uh, that has essentially vanished. And, and many people who did wield that convenient cover, uh, that facade of being intellectual and caring about policy and wanting politics to be this cosmic collision of ideologies... I think, you know, they have been exposed and, and they are quite satisfied, quite content with a political climate that is driven entirely by uh, this sort of lowest common denominator of, of tribal politics and cancel culture and ad hominem attacks and identity politics. The, the, the very things, mind you, that, you know, American conservatism was once you know, vehemently opposed to this idea that our politics should be built around, you know, identity and, and, and identity groups. And in fact, that is very much what the modern Republican Party has become. It has become a party that caters predominantly to the politics of white grievance. And it's gotten very difficult to make the case, you know, with, with a straight face that the party is, is not drawing its life force from those sort of, you know, ugly, dark tribal impulses that were once pretty widely rejected by mu at least much of the party's political class. One thing that is definitely noticeable to outsiders is they feel 
that moderate Republicans have suddenly disappeared, at least at the politician political class level. And those were the crowd of people who did turn up at international conferences and at NATO and stood for alliances around the world and things like that. I wonder what is your sense of how much that group of people is merely dormant or whether they have kind of been abolished from the Republican Party? You have Republicans who just aren't willing to lose their jobs over Donald Trump. They tell themselves, you know what, this is four years, eight years, worst case scenario. I can I can ride this out. I can survive it. And the Republican Party can survive it. And uh, I'm not going to give this guy the satisfaction of uh, driving me out. But but inherent to that thinking is a a willingness to go dormant. It's a willingness to sort of uh, silence yourself and to fall in line and to not rock the boat. And those Republicans have kind of made a bet that this forest fire of Trumpism is going to burn very hot, but very fast. And that on the other side of it, they can still be standing. I just don't know how good of a bet that is. And, and it's something that they wrestle with and something that really presents an increasing urgency for them as the first Trump term draws to a close. And if he loses, uh, there's going to be, I think, a real period of soul searching here in the party. So where this goes from here is really anyone's guess. And now let's turn to Kristen, our polling expert, who's also been tracking the effects of moderates getting knocked out of the Republican congressional and media presence. The moderate Republican ranks have really dwindled in recent years because Democrats were able to make big gains, even in districts, these suburban districts that Trump had won by maybe a couple of points. And that had really caused the number of Republican women in the House to fall. Now, when it's bouncing back this year, that will in part include some women who are extremely controversial. There is nothing moderate about them. Um, One woman from Georgia who's come under fire for having um, initially seemed somewhat sympathetic to what is known as QAnon, which is a a pretty radical conspiracy theory group here in the U.S. um, that believes there is a conspiracy against Donald Trump that that is residing deep within the government. Um, You have another woman who won a Republican primary, unseating actually an incumbent Republican member, um, who she came to prominence because she has defiantly kept her small business open even during COVID. Um, and takes a, a sort of very, you know, strongly conservative point of view. So just, to, you know, to remind listeners that just because more women or more Republican women are getting elected, that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be more moderate Republicans as a part of their conference. That Many of these women are quite conservative and are going to be coming from very deep red districts. So both Democrats and Republicans seem quite energized, but I wonder how much of that is about a general polarization in American politics and how much of it is President Trump himself as a polarizing figure driving that energy. I think it is a lot more about President Trump himself, in part because you find voters who are very fired up to participate who are not necessarily on the ideological extremes. When we think of polarization, sometimes we can think of it as folks being very far apart on policy issues, being very far apart ideologically, um, and being very dug into camps in that way. Here in this election, you have quite a number of voters who may actually be 
ideologically moderate, but it's their view on Donald Trump that is fusing them with the more ideologically extreme uh, pieces of their party and is causing this great deal of, of energy uh, and having folks very motivated to vote either for or against Donald Trump, um, but in some ways is also paving over divides that you might see within these coalitions in the absence of someone as polarizing as Donald Trump. So is there any shift, I mean, generational, gender, something else, as a result of the president's polarizing language? Yes, it remains very much the case that younger voters have been no fans of Republicans. And even as they have gotten older, they have not drifted back to the right. They have children, they've bought homes, they've done all of those things that were supposed to make them conservative and they have not moved politically. And in fact, it has now meant that Republicans are in jeopardy of losing this coming election, not just because they perform poorly with younger voters, but because they're now also performing poorly with seniors as a result of COVID-19. Donald Trump used to be able to sustain large losses with young voters because he did so well with senior citizens who very much so were drawn to his Make America Great Again message. It sort of spoke to nostalgia, a sense that we want to bring back what was best about the country, perhaps when these baby boomers were younger. But now it's these very baby boomers and senior citizens who are at the most risk of the consequences of COVID-19 from a health perspective. And so you really have seen an erosion of Donald Trump's support among seniors. There's also a chance, by the way, that part of why Donald Trump has lost more and more among seniors and why he's now uh, missing out on both ends of the generational spectrum is he's made a very big deal about calling Joe Biden old. And it may well be that by insulting Joe Biden's age, he was turning off voters of that age who did not like the implication that if you are in uh, your 70s, that, that means you must be experiencing mental decline and those sorts of things. The language of insults is a really interesting part of this polarization process or the deepening of polarization, as far as I can see. And I think it worked really well for Trump in 2016. It, it allowed him to slay his many opponents in the Republican primary field. Hillary Clinton was somewhat more of an easy target than Joe Biden, so he could really pin quite a number of these labels on her. And, and this kind of harshness in the debate worked to his advantage. And now it feels like it, it's turning against Trump in a way. And, and where I'm seeing that most probably is uh, in the, the female factor and the number of moderate women who have been deserting him. I was wondering if you have any reflections on that. Um, I think that it was really fascinating the way that Trump used the Republican convention to do what the Trump campaign is calling create a permission structure to allow those women who may feel embarrassed to be a part of the same party as Trump because of the way he conducts himself, to nonetheless say, well, you know what, this is also the party of Nikki Haley, who was former UN ambassador, you know, a luminary in the Republican Party, who just conducts herself very differently than Trump. Um, they're very focused on trying to make these voters who do feel uncomfortable with Trump's demeanor nonetheless feel like there is room for them in the party. Please stick around. Please don't hand the reins of power over to the Democrats. Uh, and that, I think, has been a very clear message since the convention. More and more Americans feel like a stranger in their own country. And I guess on the right, that comes from feeling like their country is becoming more diverse and more like the rest of the world. And then on the left, it, it's people who wonder, well, what happened to 
protecting all of these liberties and welcoming strangers from around the world as an immigrant country. How much do you think that sense of being a stranger in your own country really activates people and and makes them sort of adopt these polarized identities? I think it's a very strong motivator. And I think you've seen it even increase over the course of this summer through the protests around Black Lives Matter, the killing of George Floyd, the the shooting of Breonna Taylor, uh, and then the response, which in some cities has become violent clashes, riots, um, things burning down. If you are on the sort of center right to right, you are looking at this and you are seeing scenes of American cities burn, of police officers being disrespected or harmed. um, And you're saying, this is not good. This We can't stand for this. We need to fight for this. It makes me nervous that a community where I live, next thing you know, I could wake up tomorrow and my grocery store could be getting looted. And that doesn't feel like the country that I live in. But similarly, on the left, you have a lot of folks and, and center left who are saying, it is time for us to fight back against racial injustice. It is time for us to march in the streets. This is our moment. We need to be fighting back. Uh, and so they are feeling, you know, through watching the pushback to some of the more peaceful elements of protest, feeling like they, you know, this is a moment where, where folks who are like them are under siege. So I think this summer in particular just really further inflamed some of that divide um, and created an even more complicated political situation and cultural situation as we head toward this very polarized election. We've talked a lot about Republicans so far, but by definition, polarization means there are two opposite ends of this spectrum. Here's how Kristen sums up the ideological splits on the liberal side of the aisle. I think if you look at the Democratic field that ran for president, you had so many of them who were quite progressive. And yet Joe Biden emerged out of that field, even though we don't think of the moderate wing of the Democratic Party as being you know, terribly fired up and energized, certainly not in the same way that you see from Bernie Sanders supporters. But you had enough Democratic voters who said, look, my number one priority is defeating Donald Trump. And so I am willing to make ideological concessions. I am willing to vote for an establishment guy. I'm willing to vote for someone who is uh, an old white man, which is also something that, you know, there's been a real push for diversifying the leadership of the party, that all of that can get set aside if it is in service of defeating Donald Trump. And so if Joe Biden wins, I will be fascinated to see to what extent the left wing of the Democratic Party sort of demands that he move to the left versus the center of the Democratic Party saying, see, when we were in charge and when we ran this campaign, we won the election, we got the mandate, so now we are going to govern in a more centrist way. I also asked Tim whether he thought the Democrats were experiencing a similar meltdown as he wrote about for the Republicans. That's a great question. And I think they probably, I think it would be far more pronounced to answer your question. Yes, I think that if Trump were not this incredibly divisive and yet incredibly unifying figure for Democrats, then yes, I do think that you would see a real standoff, a real power struggle inside the Democratic Party. And, I, and and look, to be clear, I think that that's coming regardless. I think if, if Biden loses, then I think you see the outbreak of a, of a real internecine conflict in the Democratic Party, the likes of which we haven't seen in probably 30 or 35 years. And I think if Biden wins, then the next four years are absolutely fascinating. The number of Americans who claim to be in the political center is declining. 
whereas the majority of Americans used to overlap in the political center as recently as 2004. Now the majority of voters are either consistently liberal or consistently conservative in their views, according to what they tell Pew Research. Thanks to Kristen and Tim, it's clearer why. Changing demographics, economic insecurity, and the rise of social media. Infused in all that, Donald Trump's presidency has exacerbated the existing divides and called into question what his party stands for, distracting us from Democrats who are struggling with the same question. For Americans, hyperpartisanship likely won't end on Election Day, November the 3rd. In fact, 28% of Biden supporters say they aren't prepared to accept a Trump victory as fairly won. And 19% of Trump backers say the reverse of a Biden win. That's according to a USA Today Suffolk University poll. In other words, America's hyperpartisanship may also call into question the very nature of the vote itself. That's it for this episode. Your regular EU Confidential crew will be back in your feed on Thursday. And we'll be back with another episode of Campaign Confidential next Tuesday. Don't forget to subscribe to EU Confidential, wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Ryan Heath in North Carolina, and headed to South Carolina, Georgia, New Jersey, and New York ahead of the next episode. Thanks as always to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. Bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.